is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I am honored today to bring to you my friend, Dina Roche, who is the founder of Vin Roche and Luxury Travel Journalist, which I managed to say without tripping over any of the consonants in there. Dina, thank you so much for joining me. I really, I love your job and I want to talk about it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah. So you get to kind of live everybody's dream, which is pretty amazing. And we are definitely going to dig into how glamorous or how not glamorous being a luxury travel journalist is. But let's talk about Vin Roche. So this is kind of a new venture for you. Tell me how you got interested in wine and you know, kind of diving into that topic uh, so much so that you want to be able to help other people learn and do more with their wine journeys. I mean, that's really it. That's the thing that really kind of jazzes me up about Vin Rocher is the chance to um, bring different wines to people. Um, I think we all have our go-to favorite when we go out to dinner, whether it's a cab, whether it's a Chardonnay. You very few people kind of venture from their comfort zone, especially when they're paying, you know, $100 a bottle. Um, so what jazzes me up is to see somebody try something that either they were adamantly thinking they would hate and they end up loving it, or a, kind of a novice wine drinker who says to me, oh, I only like sweet wines. And I say, okay, well, let's try some of these. And they're like, oh, wow, I actually really like that. Because usually it's not the sweet of the wine that they really like. It's the fruit forwardness of the wine. So it's like seeing somebody else kind of like light up with like this, oh, wow moment that to me is like really exciting about wine. Yeah, Um, wine is such a funny topic, right? Because there's so much to it. And yet those of us who know nothing and just kind of drink it because we like it do exactly that. What do you like about that one? I don't know. It's tasty. But there's so many different qualities and so much information behind each bottle. How do you dive into that? How do you help people kind of recognize the fruit forwardness as opposed to the sweet or whatever the case may be? Right. Um, I mean, so obviously wine traditionally has this kind of pretentious snobbery aspect to it, which is unfortunate because it's really cool. It's basically traveling the world in a bottle, right? Um, and really the only way you can learn what you like is to try different things. So if you never try it, you'll never know whether you like it or not. I mean, you can tell me what you like and it'll give me an idea of some other things you might like. Um, but if you, you know, you got to start somewhere. So tasting a bunch of wine is, is how you do it. And that's what's about Vin Rocher. Like we can do tastings. You as a private consumer can order direct to your door wines from my collection and try different things at various price points. I mean, cause that's the other thing, you know, you don't want to go to a restaurant, order a hundred dollar bottle of wine, take one sip of it and go, Oh crap, I hate this. So I love the analogy of it's like traveling the world. Right. And, and you never know unless you like something. So all of a sudden ordering the same wine at every restaurant that you go to kind of feels like always going on vacation to the same exact place and never venturing out. Yeah. Right. And yet we go try different places. So why wouldn't we try different wines? I think we don't because of the price of the bottle. Um, You know, going by the glass, a little bit more comfortable for the pocketbook on that. But less options. Definitely less options and not, you know, not the super high end wine but certainly enough to give you a, a little bit of a glimpse into, yeah, I, maybe, I, maybe I actually would like Chardonnay. Oh, I didn't even know that was Chardonnay. It says white burgundy on the menu. Oh, really? That's the same thing? Fascinating. 
Is that really the same thing? It's uh, a white burgundy is made from Chardonnay grapes, but made in a different way. So usually somebody who says that they hate Chardonnay, they're passionate about this. I hate this grape. I hate it. It's buttery. It's big. It's toasty. I'll be like, okay, let's try this. Often not tell them what we're trying. And they'll be like, oh, I like it. It's clean. It's crisp. It's acidic. I'm like, it's Chardonnay. And they're like, what? <laughs> so it's, it's coming from a, you know, a different spot and it's coming from a winemaking philosophy that's different. So clearly, you know, a lot about wine and we'll get into that a little bit more, but tell me more about what services Vin Roche offers and to whom, who's the ideal uh, person to call you and ask for some of these. Sure. Um, so we, we have both B2B and B2C offerings. Um, so on, on the business side, we work with corporations and we do some really cool custom labeling wine for corporate gifting or corporate events. Like say they're having a big conference somewhere and they want to have a bottle of wine on the table that's branded to them. Mm -hmm. What makes Vin Rocher wines different than some other places that offer custom label is that our wine actually is quote unquote real wine. So there's a lot of companies out there that do like at home tastings with wine you don't know where it came from. Usually wine that isn't the top quality wine. It's just maybe more fun, you know, for fun. But the wine that we use is from vineyards you would have heard of. So in California, for example, Raymond, Deloge, Buena Vista, and then we have a collection of French vineyards as well. So it allows a corporation to custom the front part of the label and then the back of the label is exactly what it would be on a bottle that you would pick up at Total Wine. Um, so people can recognize what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a really good program because the cases of wine start at, you know, about $23 a bottle. So it's not an expensive gift, but it's a totally branded gift and it's a pretty cool gift. I mean, very few people dislike getting wine as a gift. True. But it's better that that gift is actually pretty good wine as opposed to wine that you're going to then re-gift because it's not very good wine. Well, yeah. And especially because from a corporate standpoint, the wine is reflecting your brand. So you don't want, you know, just some sort of bad grape juice there. Yeah. I had somebody gift me a bottle of corporate wine at some point and literally while handing it to me was like, this is really terrible. And I was like, oh, good. Thanks. Sell it. Um, <laughs> that. <laughs> well, that's a good friend. Yeah. So what about on the consumer side? You talked about the, the corporate gifting and the, and the white labeling, if you will. Yeah. And we also do corporate events. So tastings, virtual tastings, things like that. On the consumer side, we do that too. We do tastings, we do virtual tastings, and we have direct to consumer wine sales. So how does a virtual tasting work? So a virtual tasting would be you say you gather up like, I don't know, seven or eight of your friends. You can be all in the same spot or you can be all in different spots. And we, we um, ship the wine wherever you want us to ship it, whether it's going to be to one location or multiple locations. And then we literally just go through the tasting the way you would in person or the way you I mean, like, like whole bottles or like little vials or how does it? Yeah. So they are whole bottles. So that's why it's, it's more cost effective if at least a group of, if like, say you had maybe one or two locations rather than eight locations. Yeah. Or you, you really want to drink three bottles of wine. Which Well, it's not out yeah. of the realm of possibility now, is it? You know, you know that you can always buy a vacuum saver. So <laughs> do those work? 
Um, I find that they do work, although, you know, I do, I did, when I was in France this summer, I couldn't find a vacuum saver to save my life, which I thought was really ironic. And I was talking with a friend who's um, in the wine industry there too. And she said, you know, I don't even know how good they work. And so I was like, all right, I'm not going to worry about this with, you know, my relatively inexpensive rosé that I'm drinking on the beach. And I was able to get like three or four days out of the bottle, just simply putting the cork back into it. They have good air in France. Well, yeah, maybe, it, maybe it's that. Maybe it's <laughs> the air and the terroir and it just, the wine was inspired. Yeah. Um, I do use a vacuum saver at home. So as a bonus, super glamorous, amazing job, you're also a travel journalist, but totally focused on luxury. So A, how did that lead you into the wine side of things to start Vin Rocher? And B, how did you get into that? Like, how did you wake up one day sometime after college and go, you know what I really want to do is get paid to go to all these schmancy places and write about them? All right. So I'll answer, would you want me to answer A or B first? I leave it to you. All right. A, so how did, how did my work as a travel journalist lead into Vin Roche? Mm -hmm. So you touched on that I work in luxury. So I obviously covered a lot of really amazing food and wine experiences and destinations as a journalist. And while doing that, had a bunch of really, really great wine. And that was kind of the first spark of like, oh, wow, this is, this is kind of interesting. It's, um, you know, like, how the wine can change the food, how the food can change the wine, how a Chardonnay can be totally different from France or from California. And it, I just thought it was like my curiosity was piqued and I wanted to learn more. So I did. Um, through my work, I've been to about 35 wine regions in the world, which was fascinating. And, you know, people actually got asked this yesterday. What's your favorite? Well, geez, I don't know. I mean, how, how do you, how do I say like, Champagne's better than Napa or Napa's better than Cape Town or whatever. It's not that one is better than the other. They were all like really interesting experiences and they all, again, have their own unique tastes on wine. So, you know, there's, there's not one that stands out as like my absolute favorite. Um, but it was through those experiences, through being in what different wine countries, through being exposed to lots of really um, unique and interesting wines and through interviewing a bunch of different people in the wine industry for different articles that really sparked my interest. And I was like, you know, how, how can I be involved? You know, I'm not going to go work at a restaurant as a sommelier. Um, I'm not going to, you know, go figure out all the science behind being a winemaker. So like, where can I be involved doing something that's in wine that kind of also like, let's, let somebody else have that fun experience with wine that I have that hopefully sparks their curiosity that gets them thinking, wow, this is like a really interesting beverage that, you know, there's zillions of wines. You could, I'm very convinced you could probably drink a different type of wine every single day for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, I don't have any doubt about that. Yeah. All right. So then B let's, let's peel back the onion a little bit. How did you A decide to do it and B get into it? Tra travel luxury journalism. Yeah, so, that backwards. Luxury travel journalism. Yeah, so um, I went to school to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. and at the time that I was in school, I was looking to be a sports journalist, not to be a travel journalist. And that's how I started off my career. I started off in sports. And somewhere along the line, I went to like just a seminar at a bookstore about travel writing. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I kind of filed it away. 
and then several years later I don't know what 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 it really was that sparked me I was like other than I was like I really want to travel and I can write there's got to be a way to combine these and then I was like oh yeah that that seminar I went to there's this thing called travel writing you know I already am a writer why am I not writing that and then it was just a whole bunch of you know hard work networking with um, editors in the right space with PR people in hospitality and you know getting that first assignment. I mean, I already had clips behind me, you know, stories I'd written for other publications that weren't in travel, so that helped. But obviously, the more you write in one space, the more people get to know you and get to know your writing, and you have more credibility. So, so it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, right? You need you you need places to go and places to write about, and they need people to write about their place. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the circle of life Simba. So yeah, definitely. Is it as glamorous as it seems like it would be? Yes and no. Um, I will not argue that I have stayed at some absolutely amazing places. I have been to so many amazing destinations. Um, like I, I think I've been to over 70 countries on six continents. Um, People always say to me, oh my God, I want to do your job. I want to, I want this job. And I always ask them two questions. Do you want, do you want to make money? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, strike one. <laughs> Number two. Good news, you don't have to pay for the vacation. So <laughs> no, but you I have found that APS does not take articles on, say, solar energy to pay your electric bill. True. So the problem with journalism now is just massively reduced outlets and Type it's it's completely different than it was when I first started, and well, print media and online media, I think, is what you're kind of referring to, right? Yes, wildly different beasts. Bloggers, and I truly do have a job where when they say, "Would you do your job for free?" There's like three thousand people behind me going, "Yeah, I do that job for free," but the problem is, it's actually my job or was, right. and I can't do it for free. And just the way that media has changed, there's you just. The, the amount you make per article is, is not, not terrific anymore. And yeah. there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more problems in the industry. There's a lot less professionalism in the industry and it, it's not as fun as it once used to be. Totally fair. What's your absolute favorite place that you ever got to go for work? Oh, come on. That's too hard. No, it's not. Um, how about I give you my like three All right. top 10 or whatever. Give me. Yeah. We aren't going to take the time to run through top 10. I'll give you this. London's my favorite city in the world. I've been at least eight times. Um, I had amazing time on African safari, truly an experience you can't get anywhere else in the world. And I also really love my trip to Australia and New Zealand. Um, the outdoor experiences and the friendliness of the people, fantastic. Um, How did you do the safari? Did you get to do the kind of glampy way? Yeah. I, I told you I only cover luxury. Yes, it was very, <laughs> it was very princess. It was very princess oriented at the time. My ex husband used to love to camp, and I I don't and I won't. And we did this, and I remember like I turned to him on the first night and said, "Don't say I never camped with you. This is it." So this is yes. it. Yeah. Is it. And were there like giraffes in camp with you? I mean, we weren't sleeping together, but um, <laughs> it, it could have roamed in. Um, a giraffe never did. An elephant did roam into the camp one day. So 70 countries, six continents. I'm guessing Antarctica is the one that's been left out. 
Yes, it's the missing link. Do you have any interest in going there? Yes, at some point I would love to go there. Um, I mean, there's like the National Geographic cruises and stuff, or at least there used to be. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no good wine down there, but Mm. yeah, ice wine. I know. I was just thinking maybe some ice wine, (laughs) but um, probably not. But so, where's the bucket list? The places you've never been that you are just dying to go. Um, I would really love to see more of Asia. I've been to Malaysia. I've been to Thailand, but that's it. Um, Morocco's on the list. Um, I, despite having been to Europe and lived there part-time, it's still one of my absolute favorite places to go. I spent the summer there when, you know, I upped my number of wine regions, spending a fair amount of time in France. And I was also, um, in the Swiss wine region. So literally like living in the vineyards. So are there plate, like, are there particular destinations like this hotel or that? restaurant or something like that that you are you know just really wanting to go visit um you know not not necessarily um the royal marrakesh in morocco is the first thing that comes to my mind as far as a hotel i haven't been to that i would love to go to um i would go to any Amman hotel in the world um yeah ideally on the journalist thing right so that you're not having I mean, to yeah, pay for I, it <laughs> Yeah, um, that would be ideal, but um, if it doesn't happen, that's okay too, on the journalism side. Yeah, no doubt. Hopefully the wine team can take over for the journalism thing and I'll just, you know, jump on a plane and go wherever. So you mentioned that you upped your number of uh, wine regions this past summer when you were spending quite a bit of time in France, which is amazing, by the way. Uh, Are you... For Vin Rocher, are you pulling some of the wines from each of those regions or your favorites? Are you able to work with those vineyards to bring those wines to your customers at Vin Rocher? Um, not bring the wines per se. I already do have a collection of French wines. It's more scouting to do some future wine wine tr- travel with Vin Rocher when things are hopefully much more normal. Um, that That is one of my... Um, goals with the company is to be able to offer exclusive like VIP tours to various wine regions and to take them to small producers. So this summer, like when I was there in, I was purposefully picking out, you know, when I was in Champagne, I didn't go to Dom Perignon and things like that. I was trying to find using my contacts, you know, who are the small producers that are really good that we don't even know about in the U S because the wine doesn't make it here. So So then what does that trip kind of look like? Small group, fancy restaurants, great hotels. Yep. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And then staying somewhere close by to a whole bunch of. Yeah. Vineyards or winemakers you can go visit. Exactly. Or even like if, if a customer came to me and said, Hey, I want to arrange my own group or even just a family trip. And I want somebody who's really knowledgeable to come with us. And, you know, drive the trip, figure out where we should go, who we should talk to, what should we see, what should we taste. Um, The good thing with that is coming at it from both the wine side and the travel, travel journalism side, you know, in addition to knowing about the wines of a region, I know the region pretty well too. So what regions do you love that people don't even know wine comes from? I mean, France, we get that, right? Napa, we get that. Yeah. Um, well, I'll give you two. I, I won't say they're my absolute favorite in the world, but Fair enough. two that I was just at this summer looking at. 
Um, in Italy, about maybe 50 minutes out of Turin, there's a wine region called Alba. And you do know it because it's um, Barbaresco, Barolo, that's all comes from there. But you never associate those two wines and think Alba. So that that's a little interesting wine region. It's very pretty. Obviously, it's in Italy. The food is great. Um, <laughs> it's not, I and mean, you go there, and, and I mean, the tastings, you, you know, it's not like a Napa tasting where it's $50 to do a basic tasting. So it's a lot more, you're, you actually get to interact with the winemakers, and, you know, it's usually a lot of family-run um, vineyards. Um, so that was, that's one region. Um, another region I was in, the Valais, Switzerland. Um, most people don't ever associate Switzerland with wine, right? No, fondue and raclette and... Right, and money. Money. Yeah. And cows uh, with bells, yeah. And cows with bells, yes, exactly. But they have quite extensive area in the French part of, mainly in the French, it's, it's, it, there's other parts, but the main wine regions are in the French part of Switzerland. And the reason you don't know that they grow wine is it, it never leaves the country. It's such small production. It's drunk by the people who live there. But when you think about what borders Switzerland, it's Italy, France, and Germany. So suddenly the fact that Switzerland makes wine starts to make a little bit more sense. True. No doubt about that. So I always like to ask advice stuff. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, so you kind of touched on the very beginning where people never really try what they don't know. So once they discover something they like, then they go ahead and drink that kind of forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of wine blinders happening there. Yeah. So two questions, how, what advice do you have for somebody who wants to do something a little bit more interesting, but you know, maybe one step short of hiring a consultant, right? So what's kind of an easy pairing set of advice and then walk into a wine store and you want to buy something different. What are the things that you should look for and how can you be successful and not have a terrible bottle of wine come home with you? Sure. So like in terms of expanding your palate, again, goes back to the only way you're going to do that is to try different things. So get a group of friends together, have each of you like bring a bottle of wine, but have it, you know, have it be somewhat focused. So for example, I have a friend who she just did a tasting with eight girlfriends, a blind tasting of different champagnes, seven champagnes, one American sparkling wine. And cause they were all, cause she said her friends were absolutely convinced that Clicquot would be the best. <laughs> and was it? No. What was? Um, so the top, wine in her tasting was a Bollinger. Interesting. Clicquot was, Clicquot was, you know, in the middle. I mean, it, was, it certainly wasn't yeah. at the bottom, but it's that perception, you know, like Clicquot has amazing marketing. Of course. Yeah. And pretty it, bottles, it, which is how I buy my wine, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you look at the label and you go, yeah, I like it. Yeah. That's pretty. I'll try that one. And, you know, honestly, if it gets you to try something new, it's not the worst approach truth. All right. So then what about pairing? You're having some friends over for dinner. You're making something or other that's your signature thingamajiggy. What do you pair with that? How do you know? Sure. Well, first of all, like pairing for dummies, pairing for dummies. So even before you like look at what might be like a classical or perfect pairing, I think you look at your guests and you think like, you know, if somebody has a certain thing that they absolutely can't stand, you know, 
you don't want to go there. Like if somebody gets headaches from, you know, red wine, at least have another option for them. That's not to say don't have red wine in, at all, but make sure that your guests are taken care of. Cause at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. But if you're making a dish, you basically are going to look to pair like, like you're either going to go like flavors to like flavors, or you're going to look at it and go, this, this dish is French. Perhaps I go with a wine that comes from this particular region. There's a reason that certain wines and certain foods come from certain regions. They do really work well together. So, together. From, so from a dummy perspective, that's easy. Yeah. You know? And I wouldn't have thought of either. Right. Um, you know, there are, there are certain things that are much hard, harder to pair than others. I mean, Asian food tends to be a harder one to go with wine. The pairing for that, it's going to be the wines that maybe you think you don't like, a Gewürztraminer or a Riesling. Like I always hear Riesling, oh, it's too sweet. It's too sweet. Not necessarily. A dry Riesling is not sweet. And it is good pairing with Asian. German and, wines with Asian food. I like it. <laughs> or if you want to, if you really, if you really have no clue and you're just like, you want to be sure that you're going to please everybody, it's going to go with whatever food you're making. You know, champagne is the, the universal pair. Yeah. So on the topic of sparkling things, champagne or otherwise, rosé versus not rosé, what's the difference? And why do people like rosé so much? In terms of spark, in terms of champagne or sparkling? Yeah. Um, or not, I guess. Rosé, not sparkling, is super popular for some reason now. Well, I mean, to go on your first question for, we'll take it from sparkling. Um, what's the difference? It's the grapes it's made with. So, you know, you have different grapes that are, you know, you have a Chardonnay that's usually making up the bulk of a Blanc. A Rosé is going to be coming more from a Pinot Noir grape to give it that color. The skin, you know, the skins give it that color. Um, in terms of why do people like it? Um, I think personally it has a little bit more fruit forwardness. And again, going back to that thing where I said people tend to like, we all want to be thinking that we're, oh, I like really bone dry wine and maybe you do. But I think a lot of us, especially the American palate, likes things that are a little bit more fruit forward. Um, also, honestly, from a sparkling perspective, I think rosé is festive. That's and true. It, it is very pretty, pretty in a glass. Pretty in the glass. So mm -hmm. I think that's probably partly why it might be popular right now. I mean, certainly after the year and a half we've had, we could use festive. <laughs> no doubt about that. I enjoy a glass of rosé that's sparkling over the sparkling that's not rosé, probably because it's pink. I mean, here's an interesting story. And again, talking about how place and wine kind of go together. Rosé is never, still rosé, has never been my favorite wine. Mm -mm. Okay, I'll drink it, but it's never been my favorite. However, this summer I was in the south of France where it's very popular and it's popular for a reason. It just works with the climate. Like I only drank rosé when I was in the South of France and I loved it. It was great. And it just, it was perfectly paired to the location. France has good air. Yes. Funny how all things come full circle, isn't it? Right. <laughs> this is why they drink rosé in the Hamptons too in the summer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly, a, it's definitely a summer sipper. Yeah, no doubt. I love it. Well, I mean, I think that your knowledge of wine is fully on display in this conversation and my lack of the same knowledge is also fully on display, but I really appreciate you. And I think that people will really learn a lot from you and obviously should be using all of your services at Vin Rocher because it's amazing. 
Now tell everybody how they can connect with you and VinRoche online. Sure. So easy online, it's just VinRoche.com. And connect with me, um, info at VinRoche, Dina at VinRoche, all of that works. Um, Instagram, uh, Dina Roche, Facebook, VinRoche. When you have a unique name, branding is easy. We can both we can both attest to that. All right. So then, as you know, I like to wrap all these episodes up with my favorite torture game of two truths and a lie. So in no particular order, and do not rat yourself out and tell us which one is the lie. Give us three facts about yourself, one of which is, you know, less factual. Cool. Um, I didn't drink wine until I was 21. I, I like beer as much as wine. And I played division one tennis in college. I, for the first time in the history of the Shandyland podcast, think I know which one is true, <laughs> which one is not true. I guess I should say, yay. <laughs> There's a new benefit of knowing each other. A new milestone. Perfect. So, so maybe one day there's, I don't know what the, what the French word for beer is, but maybe there's another yeah. Rocher thing coming one day. If in fact, that one is also true. Perhaps. You know, well, I can't wait to go on a wine travel trip with you at some point when everything is opened up and all the passports are accepted everywhere again and all of that stuff. I think that that would be absolutely amazing and luxurious. I have no doubt. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a good time. I look forward to that too. Yeah. So Dina, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure everybody learned a ton. And if you want to learn more and find out what kind of wine you didn't know you liked, but you do, call Dina, get connected with Vin Rocher, and enjoy your new wine knowledge. Dina, thank you. And listeners, thanks for sticking around. As always, this has been the Shandyland Podcast. (laughs) 